0: Good morning, how are we? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to continue our series in the book of Romans. We're going to look at uh, Romans 1 to 20, Romans 3, 1 to 20. Also, as you're turning there, I want to uh, acknowledge someone uh, because it has been a morning of glitches. Uh, First, I just want to question Jonathan Usi's commitment to Christ and his church. Even though his appendix burst this week, he should have been up here leading worship. So just pray for his soul. That's a joke, um, but we do pray he gets better. Uh, so thank you, Josh, for jumping in uh, this morning, but also Casey Barber. The sound guy never gets any love or credit because he's back there, uh, but he was dealt a huge mess this morning with no power and no internet to get the slides, and then the projector didn't work, and so thank you, Casey. Everyone give Casey a round of applause, um, and I, I did take a little joy, a little delight watching him sweat and turn red and, and uh, freak out a little bit, so. but he handled it well, so thank you, Casey. Uh, So if you have a Bible, we're going to read uh, Romans chapter 3, 1 to 20. We'll continue our series in grace for the nations in the book of Romans. So let's read that together. Romans 3, uh, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if your unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as is written Excuse me. as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that Wherever the law says it, speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let us pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we, we do come before you humbly, before you, before your word. We know that you're a, a speaking God, you're a communicating God, you haven't left us in the dark. And even in, in the midst of, of all the, the chaos this morning, just trying to kind of get here and get the power on and, and, and figure some things out, God, we know that you have something to say to us, that we're all in this, this space, this, this place, this gathering this morning for a reason, um, that you want to speak to us. And so give us open ears to hear and receive what you want to say. Um, I pray in my weakness you'd be strong. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, 2000 even the year 2000 uh, my uh wife-to-be, uh, we had the opportunity to go to Germany. My parents used to live in Germany for a couple years, and I thought, uh, being the romantic that I am, uh, that the best place to ask uh, this beautiful woman's hand in marriage would be on a gondola in Italy, right? I mean, that's just what you do when your parents live in Germany. So uh, so the plan was get the ring, uh, which wasn't cheap, but get the ring, uh, and then we need to transport the ring and ourselves over to Germany to be with my folks so that I can pop the question to my beautiful uh, wife, who is still my beautiful wife, she's is she in here this morning? Uh, I don't think she is. She's with the kids. But um, and, and so one of the challenges was, as I was thinking through this strategic romantic uh, play, was how do I get this ring over to Germany without her knowing it? Because if you've ever seen a ring in a ring box, I mean they're massive, right? I mean in this thing, you're not going to hide this thing. You put it in your pocket, it's going to stick out this far. So my dad was entrusted to take the ring across uh, the ocean and make sure that it would uh, get there safe and sound. And I also was nervous because if I had it in my bag and you know how it goes in, in security, they're going to open the bag and they're going to check my stuff. And it's like, Oh, what's this giant uh, diamond ring? It's like, Oh, nothing. I just, I like rings. Uh, And so I, you know, was trying to figure all these things out. And it was a, a beautiful occasion. We made it there. Uh, my wife, to this day, didn't think I was going to actually do it in Germany or in Italy uh, because it was kind of towards the end of the trip. And she's like, well, I guess he's not doing it here, loser. And uh, and then I ended up kind of surprising her and doing it and babbling something about I love you and take this ring and hopefully don't fall in the ocean because uh, that was my fear. Um, but there's something behind that. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. It's part of my story. But there's a something that happened in that passing of the rings, there was an entrustment that happened. There was, Dad, take this ring. You're entrusted with this ring. But the thing is, the principle behind that is that that wasn't his ring. It wasn't his deal. It was something that he was entrusted with. And, and all of us have been entrusted with different things, right? Messages, uh, parents, uh, we, we, we're parents. We're parents. We're married. We have jobs. We we've, we've been given these things, entrusted to these things, but they're not ours to carry. And that's a little bit what's going on with Romans 3, and, and Romans in general, As this, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, the, the, the people that God's hand, he, he, he had his hand on. He said, here's the, the promises of God, as Paul even says, the oracles of God. Here's this message that you're, you're entrusted to carry, but the thing is, it's not your message. It's God's message given to you, shared with you, you aren't supposed to poke at it and change it and make it what you want. And and this time in, in Israel's history, there they're, they're, they're kind of thinking that, well, because we're the chosen ones, we have the oracles of God, we have this promises of God. We've been entrusted with this good news, is it's really about us. And Paul, time and time again, the writer of Romans, has to kind of remind them hey, this gospel message of grace is for everyone. That it's not just for the Jewish people. It began with the Jewish people, yes. I mean, Jesus was Jewish, right? But the message in the Old Testament to the New was always that you would be a light to the nations, Jew, Gentile, those who had the Scriptures, those who didn't, that you would share this message with other people, this good news of grace. And so that's where we, we, we pick it up, uh, this morning is, is, is they've kind of, they've taken in this message. It's been entrusted to them, but then they have all these kinds of, of questions about them. What good is it to be a Jew then? What is it? I mean, it feels like we don't even have, uh, any say or, or what does this mean? And that's where we, we kind of begin with the first eight verses of Romans, chapter 3. It's kind of this question and, and, and answer format, which I love. Paul is very creative in this, and so you have to imagine kind of this, this hypothetical situation in this church, and in, in like any good New Testament letter, he's trying to answer the questions that they have. And that's why there's a lot of question marks, as you maybe caught as you noticed you know then what advantage has the jew or what is the value of circumcision right he's he's kind of proposing this hypothetical situations he can hear the rumblings he can go he can hear him go hey we've been entrusted with this message and this is our thing and yet all these gentiles are coming in i don't really understand because remember what i mentioned a few weeks ago is that the context of romans is a church where the jews have been pushed out because they weren't they were frowned upon in the first century Rome, roman people hated the jews they were being persecuted so they get pushed out of the city now all these Gentiles, non-Jewish people become Christians. Now they're in the church. And then the Jews start funneling back into the church. And now there's Jews and Gentiles and they're going, what? Who are all these people? They don't even know the Bible. Like, what's going on here? So you can sense the tension that's going on here. And so Paul's beginning to answer their questions and their concerns that they have. And, and I'm just going to summarize the first eight verses, and I'm going to do that, actually, um, because I want to spend the bulk of our time in the last ten verses or so. Um, but I like the way uh, Timothy Keller, who's a used to be a pastor in New York... <clears throat> a church planner who still works with a church planning organization and I love the way he summarizes the first eight verses uh, in this kind of question and and answer format Uh, and I'm just going to summarize that so the the question in verse one is Paul are you saying there is no advantage to biblical religion answer no I'm not saying that there is great value in having and knowing the words of God right These, these oracles of God that have been entrusted to you well what's the other question well yes but those words have failed haven't they because so many haven't believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in God's Son, Jesus. What has happened to the promise? That's a good question. The answer? Despite his people's failure to believe, God's promises to save are advancing. Our, faithfulness only, our faithlessness only reveals how committed to his truth he is. Think of what he's done in order to be faithful to his promises. Right? So it's actually in their unfaithfulness, God shows how faithful he really is. Question, But if unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is it fair for Him to judge us? Verse 5. Answer, On that basis, God would not judge anyone in the world. And we, Paul and religious Jews, all agree God should judge. Right? We understand our true nature. We understand how we fall short of God's commands. Of course, everyone deserves condemnation and judgment. Question, Well then, if if me sinning makes God look better, that means that I should sin more. Shouldn't I? So that his glory is more clearly seen, right? I mean, this is almost you kind of, I mean, reading it now, you're just like, really? Like they have these questions? Like, like, let's just rip off a huge one just so God can be glorified, right? I mean, this is kind of insane. But he says, I have been accused of thinking this, and I certainly don't. And saying you're sinning so that God will love you is an attitude that is absolutely worthy of judgment. And I think that's A good word to understand this kind of first part of of Romans uh, three. That this this question of well, we've been kind of entrusted with this these things, and and you know what good is it? We have the the commands, we have the promises. You know, are are we even in the family? Should we just keep on sinning so God looks better? No, and that's where we pick it up in verse verse nine. What then? What a great question. Okay, well then what? What, what, what do we do, Paul? Like, How do we live? What, what, you know, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So the first place we, we want to kind of start this morning and, and, uh, is to understand is that all of us need God's grace. All of us are, are lost, whether we're a Jewish person who understands the scriptures backwards and forwards and knows the promises, knows the covenants, knows the commands, or, or we're just coming in and, and not really sure who this God is and what He's like and, and what He's revealed to us and what he, he, He's taught us wherever we, we are. Whether we think we're a good person or an immoral person, it doesn't matter. The reality is that all of us need the grace and mercies of God And that's why Paul says right there, very clearly in verse verse nine is that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. They're under under sin. This, this is a, a beautiful kind of statement to understand how the gospel works and how Christianity works is that we're, we're either under sin and that's also another way of saying unrighteous. We've talked about that. Uh, Andy talks about that in, when he preached a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter one, the unrighteousness, sin, evil, whatever, this, this inclination away from God, um, uh, but toward sin, whatever it, it, it may be—a way towards idols, towards everything but God—not loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, not loving our neighbor as our ourself—there's a there's a, a unrighteousness that has has come. So we're either under sin or un, unrighteous. It's a it's a person. It's a excuse me. It's a positional term. Um, so we're either under sin or the other is we're under grace. We're either under sin or Paul loves to say, "Or we're in Christ. We're trusting in Christ. We're trusting His promise. We're trusting what Jesus has done on our behalf. His righteousness, His good works, His perfect record, His morality becomes ours in Christ. And we become new creations. We become his people. We become his saints. And it's kind of, I love, someone has called it a spiritual passport. Um, Is that if you look at a passport, my my son and I and and our family went yesterday. Um, He's taking a trip uh, with, he goes through this French immersion school uh, in Kansas City. And they get to take a trip to France. It's like, geez, kids these days are so spoiled. Um, I was just lucky to like, I don't know, go... Anywhere cool. But anyway, um, that's here or there. Um, but we go and we get this passport. And if you've had a passport, many people have had a passport, they, they stamp the different countries that you go in. And, and really what Paul is saying is, is that if we look at our spiritual passport, is it stamped under sin or is it stamped in Christ? Is it stamped away from God, away from his affection, away from his life, away from his kingdom, or is it stamped, I'm his, I belong to him by faith? And it's a free gift. It's mine. It's, it, it's, it's. So, so when I look at your passport, when I look at my passport, how is it stamped? And that's been Paul's argument all the way through Romans 3 thus far. It, it, it doesn't matter if you're, you're religious or unreligious, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're moral or immoral, whether you're the, the older brother or the younger brother. It doesn't matter if you're under the power and influence of sin or under the power of love and grace in Jesus. The question is, what is stamped on the passport? Who do you belong to? And that's a little bit of the Jews, those that had the promises of God, those that had the scriptures. That's why they're so upset, going, God, does it even matter that we're Jewish? But God's message to them and to us has always been what he said, what he said last week was, it's not about the external circumcision that happened um, in the Old Testament that set, set you apart as the people of God. He says now there's a different circumcision that's happened, and it's the circumcision of the heart. It's when God invades your life and shows you his grace and his mercy and makes you new. What's stamped on your passport? And I think this is really important because I think in our day, what we kind of do is like, it's not under sin, under grace. It's like certain kinds of people, certain kinds of sin. And so we categorize everyone, right? That the reality, there's only two kinds of people in the universe. Right here as I'm speaking this, past, present, and future, those that are in Christ and those who aren't. doesn't matter what sins they're into. Right? Doesn't matter how good they are, doesn't matter how moral they are, how 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 much they care for the earth. It doesn't matter if they're a good dad or a good mom or a good mother or or if they're good at work or they have integrity or no integrity. The reality is we're either in Christ under grace or we're under sin. That's been Paul's argument the whole time. He doesn't want us to play the game of balancing, well, you know, they're kinda good, they're kinda spiritual, they're they're kinda not. It's it's either we know Christ or we don't. And it doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what denomination you're a part of. I would walk into any church in Kansas City or in the world and say, hey, it doesn't matter. We're either in Christ or we're not. I don't care what your liturgy is. I don't care what your you know, believing documents are. <laughs> right? And so as we, we look at this, the, the, the reality is, is that we're, we're all lost and we need the gospel um, of grace. And, and positionally, every human made by God is in the same place. There's no degrees of lostness. Like, like here, here, here's, um, so I have, a, I have a now two-year-old. She's still in diapers, um, as two-year-olds are. <clears throat> and, and I have an almost teenager so so we have any given moment in our home we could have a smelly rotting diaper going on and then any given time we can have a smelly teenager that just got home from basketball practice that doesn't smell much better than a rotting diaper in our home all kinds of smells i mean smells that you just go oh lord come quickly what is going on in this home But they're all smells, and there's no degree of dirtiness. They all need to be cleaned and they need a shower. That's what Paul's saying here. We all need grace. There's not varying degrees of losses. Well, well Ryan, you don't understand. you haven't met Uncle Larry. Uncle Larry is a terrible, awful sinner. I mean the things he does, the things he says, how he treats people, you don't even know. I'm not like Larry at all. There's no degree. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory. Of God. And that's what we talked about last week, Luke 15, right? The younger brother and the older brother, right? We, we love the, the parable of the, the prodigal son. We love to, to preach the sermon on the younger son, right? The, the son who's lost, who takes the inheritance and goes and squanders sex, drug, and rock and roll, just living loose and just doing the thing. And then, and then he comes back and the father runs out to him and pulls up his robe, which had been culturally just absolutely disgraceful to the community. And he gives him a big hug and he throws him a party. And there's the older brother, Dad, are you kidding me right now? He squanders your inheritance and you throw him a fatted, you buy him a fatted calf and you throw him a party, and here am, here am I doing everything right. And he says, Son, all that I've had is yours. You've been here with me the whole time. The older and the younger brother both need the grace of Jesus. And both are just as lost. So we need to first acknowledge the reality of our need of grace, that we're all lost. We all need this grace, that, that we all fall short of the glory of God. And, and as we, we kind of move into the, the latter, the second half of this, this letter, notice how Paul kind of lays out the, what I would call the realities and the effects of sin, of trying to live away from, from God. He says in, in verse, verse 10, None is righteous, but not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asses under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so Paul kind of lays out, he doesn't want to just say, hey, we're un- either under grace or under sin, but he, he kind of shows the effects of the sin that we, you and I, walk in. When we try to live our lives apart from God, just like the Garden of Eden, when we, instead of enjoying God, enjoying humanity, enjoying his creation, we say, God, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to run from you. I'm not going to listen to your ways. And there's like seven different effects. I won't, I won't spend a lot of time on them, but, but it, I think it's enlightening to understand how deep sin really goes and how it affects everything. The, the, it, is, it affects, one, our, our position before God. We caught that. None is righteous. No, not one. I mean, we stand before God needing His grace. So positionally, we're, we're not righteous before God. We're guilty, condemned. We're under sin. No deeds can change that. And that's really Paul's argument. He's like, no deeds or works or following the commands are going to change that. Secondly, our our minds are fractured. You catch that in verse 11. No one understands that even our minds uh, to understand and grapple with with truth have been darkened. Um, Paul talks about that, I think, in a very very enlightening way. When we think about anthropology and and the human nature and and the mind and the heart, Um, in Ephesians 4, 17, Paul, same writer as Romans, says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's Kind of interesting the way Paul kind of identifies the problem. That the heart, that the center of our will, emotions, desires, are connected to the mind as well. So, so how we understand also affects the hardness of the heart. So even when we speak to the things of God, the God or the gospel of God, that with, the hard, with a hard, with a mind that is darkened and a, a heart that is hard, there's no receptivity. That's just hogwash. But Paul would say that the, the enemy has blinded. Uh, unbelievers, and, and there 's a veil over our hearts so that we can 't even receive the things of God. It just sounds kooky, it sounds weird it do, it doesn 't sound like reality until God rips the veil open and gives us receptivity to receive right our, our, even our own minds and, and that 's what 's silly when we have folks that that want to argue that you know god doesn 't exist and you know science is better and it 's all about science and and you know we can prove that well, think about our pound human sinful brain that i'm going to stand before a holy god and go nope i know how the universe works god told me or uh, actually there is no god so i just know right uh, but our mind has been darkened we suppress the truth and, and it, this is what sin does and it affects our position before god it affects our minds our fracture even affects our motivation to seek god did you catch that in, in verse 11 no one seeks for god that there's not even an inclination, not even a desire to, to, to want to know God. We don't want to know His truth. We don't want to know His ways. We don't come out of the womb going like, where's God? I love Him. I want to worship Him. It's, it's the opposite. Isn't it astounding how, if you have kids, how, how at such a young age they can just be so rebellious so quickly? You know that, Paul, right? right? You know your own heart. I mean, they say no. That's like their favorite word. Have you noticed that? Their first word is No. And you don't have to teach them that. There's no yes coming. Yes, Father, I love you. I will do whatever you ask of me, Father. It's no, 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 I'm not doing that. Where do they learn to lie, right? Like they they're just come out of the womb, just ready to just I mean, it's they just, they, just in us, right? It's a, there's the, the motivation, the inclinations, the desires to do what is good and what is right, to love God with all of our hearts, to love our, our, our neighbors is, is lacking. And it's just like Adam and Eve in the garden. We avoid him. We walk away from him. And we can do that with religion. We can do that with irreligion. We can be the older brother or the younger. It doesn't matter. We also have a a fourth. We have a a will that's bent away from from God. All have turned aside, verse 12. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Doesn't that sound like echoes of, of Isaiah 53? You guys know Isaiah 53? Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That our souls, our lives are bent away from God and his, his kingdom. We've all turned away. We've become self determined, choosing our own paths away from God. about five? Our mouths twist the truth sinful words are just a really what Paul's saying here is that it's like this open grave it's it's decay it's 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 the way we use our mouths to lie and manipulate and twist the truth the ways we use our mouths to protect our own interests how about our other, our relationship with others right any amens to that sin hasn't done anything to to human relationships good thing 15, their feet are like swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and mystery, and the way of peace they have not known. Right? That literally Paul's saying, we are after blood, sometimes literally, in human relationships. We become angry, we push people aside, we don't let them get our way. When they don't let us have our idols and our ways, we, we push them down. We say, get out of here. <laughs> we have a hard time getting along, showing grace, showing mercy, showing forgiveness. Human relationships are fractured. And the reality is what Paul kind of unearths is that when we're not at peace with God, we can't be at peace with other people. Because the driving reality of peace with humans is peace with God. Because if I'm not getting my peace from another person other than that person, it's the moment they say no to me, I go, uh uh-uh, excuse me. But when my ultimate peace and my ultimate good and my ultimate joy is found in God, it flows down into human relationships. But until that relationship is healed, there's no chance horizontal uh, human relationships will ever be healed. Because I'm always going to be looking to them to be something they were never designed to be, to be God for me. So instead of loving them and serving them, I crush them with expectations that are totally unfair. We do that in marriage. We do that with parent, with, in our parenting. We do that in our jobs. As we put an expectation on humans that it's totally unfair, that it was reserved for God. Because our ultimate peace and our ultimate joy is not found in Him. Too honest? I know. Preaching to the choir, trust me. And our relationship with God obviously is fractured. Did you notice in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, Welcome to New City Church. like, sheesh, this is a chipper sermon. I'm so glad I came this morning. Okay, pastor, I get it. I'm a sinner. Sheesh. But there's something interesting that Paul's doing here. Because Paul, just like he began the, the letter of Romans, that, that he understood that the whole thing is built on grace. That despite all of this, the effects of sin—how how deep it goes, how it fractures everything: our minds, our hearts, our will, the the world, our relationships, our relationship with God. There's some interesting things that I think he he says, and I want to just drop in just for to kind of land the the back half of the sermon on a couple things that he said because I think this helps us understand more of who God is and how we're to to live in the world with Him and with other people. Notice what he said about no one. Three things, no one seeks God, no one does good, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. No one seeks God. Isn't that kind of an interesting, maybe, maybe it didn't hit you when you first read it, or maybe this is the first time you're, you're reading it, but, but no one seeks God. I mean, that, that seems like kind of, a, kind of a huge statement, Paul. Like you're saying there's no one that seeks God, no one that, that is seeking to know and love and cherish and enjoy and serve and obey God, people that are worshiping and appreciate him and rejoice in him. Is, is that what he's saying? I mean, some of us would say, well, I, I know all kinds of people that are seeking God. I mean, maybe not organized religion, but, I mean, maybe they're part of another religion, or or maybe they pray, or they're, they're into spiritual things, or spiritual teaching, or, or yoga, or, or something. What, what? Are you saying, Paul's saying there's no one? Like, no one seeks, seeks God. That seems like kind of a, a... Okay. But I think what Paul's saying, he's, he's saying people never seek God for his blessings have the prayers and to calm a guilty conscience. What Paul is saying is that no one prompted by their own volition, their own will, their own desire or decision wants to seek God. No one. No one comes out of the womb saying, I'm in. Something has to happen for us to even begin to seek God. So Paul, would, I mean, he preached all over the, the Roman Empire. I mean, he saw religious people, and he says, oh, I see that you're very religious. Oh, I see the different gods that you worship. He wasn't denying that, that nobody is seeking God. But what he's saying here is that without the, the God coming to us first, there is no way that anyone will ever seek God. For God. Oh, we'll, we'll pray when life's falling apart and say, God, if you're there, please help me out of this situation. Right? Oh, we'll, we'll show up to church when, when we feel like, man, my life's just falling apart. But, but it, we don't really come wanting God necessarily. Some of us do. I mean, some of us are here this morning because we're being w- with what we would call the woo of God. God is wooing you here. Like you're here, like I don't know why I'm here. I'm not sure. It just seems like the pastor talks a lot about sin, but it's just kind of interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm captivated. The scriptures are starting to take on a new life. There's something kind of going in, going on inside of me. I'm interested about these things. But without God moving in us first, nobody seeks God. I mean, scriptures make it clear all over, all over the place, and I, and I have a reason why I'm, I'm hitting this so hard. But Jesus teaches this way. Remember in John chapter three, uh, Nicodemus, Nick at night, right? He shows up kind of embarrassed. He he wants to talk to Jesus, so he comes at at, at nighttime and and, and kind of like, hey, I got some questions. And like, hey, you're a true shouldn't you know these things? And, and Jesus kind of lays them bare in in John chapter 3, verse 5, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Have you ever seen wind? No? got quiet in here, right? Nobody's seen wind. You can't see it. You see its effects. Don't you? I tell you. Yeah, uh, Friday, I was meeting someone for lunch. I, I walked to a, to a local restaurant and, and had lunch with them, and I was, I was walking up, uh, I forget the street name uh, up here, but I was, I was walking, and it, it, there appeared to not be any wind at all, but I could kind of see the trees just a little bit, and there's really not blowing on me at all, and as soon as I made a right down the street, the wind just but I couldn't see it. I could feel its effects. I could see the trees swaying back, back and forth. But that's how the Spirit of God works. We don't do it. There's God is at at work. He's the one grabbing, giving us the inclination, giving us the z- desire, the motivation to actually begin to seek God because God, the Spirit, we need supernatural help and ability to see and believe and trust. If you back up one one uh page or a couple of chapters, John in the opening of John's gospel says something very similar um, in verse 12, John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. No one seeks God unless God shows up. Doesn't matter your denomination, doesn't matter your family background, your ethnicity, doesn't matter if you were born in America, doesn't matter if you voted a certain way. It, it doesn't matter who, who your family is, or if your grandpa was a pastor, it has no bearing on your life with God. God is the one who comes and opens our hearts to see and believe and walk in His power. Now, why do I say all these things? Why do I say these things? Well, because I think Paul's argument is, I want you to see the effects of sin, but the moment you begin to think that somehow you sought God before he sought you, you're missing the whole plot line. Because if you get that backwards, you're going to think it's actually about you. And it's actually about your ethnicity or your background. That's a little bit of the problem with the Jews, right? They think we're the chosen ones, right? We've been chosen by God. And so it doesn't matter if we're faithful or not. We have the oracles. We have the promises. I grew up in the church. I grew up in this family, whatever it is. But he's saying the moment you forget that God's the one who came and rescued you, God's the one who came and found you, God's the one who put on flesh and and lived a life we couldn't live and and died and rose victorious from the grave, the moment we put ourselves in there... The gospel of grace means very little to you on a daily basis. But the moment you see who you really are, the list of sins, and you see his grace and his mercy and his love, your awe and your wonder and your gratitude and your obedience will be off the charts. We have to know bad news before we understand good news. And I understand the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis 3 with the broken, fallen world. It begins with us being made in the image of God. Yes and amen. A good God who come and made you and knit you together in your mother's womb. Even that should cause praise to rise up. The fact you have breath in your lungs today, the fact you have a job to go to, a family to go to, the fact later you're gonna eat fajitas and guacamole should should rise up in you. uh, Worship and praise of the good gifts that God gives you. But the problem is, is that we terminate his good gifts and think that somehow we deserve it. Somehow it's been owed to us. Somehow because I'm a good person, or I lived a certain way or I do the right things that God deserves to give me all these things then we don't believe the gospel. The whole thing is grace. No one seeks God unless God seeks us first. That should cause a tear in your eye and gratitude in your heart when you grapple with it, when you sit with it long enough. The whole thing is grace. We begin by grace and we end by, by grace. So I think that's one important implication for us: why we we look at this list and go, "Sheesh, dark," but we say, "Look at the one who came and found us." How about no one is good? Now people are going to say, "Okay, Ryan, now you're you're crazy." Okay, I'm just this is what Paul says. Just get up with Paul, but Paul says there's no one good. But people do all kinds of good things, right? Don't they? Right, every day people are doing nice, kind things in your workplace, right? Just, Got the guy a cup of coffee, said a kind word. Of course, good things happen all over in our city, right? Helping the homeless, helping the, the broken, right? Counselors, teachers, right? Engineers helping our city become safe. You know, plumbers, elect, you know, electrical people that come when your power goes out and gets it back on the grid, right? There's all kinds of good things going on, right? What is Paul talking about? But what Paul actually at the heart of what he's arguing is doing good things is not going to make our relationship with God, God, that's not going to fix the problem. Us trying to do good things is not going to fix what can't be fixed, what needs natural intervention. That's his main argument. Because so much of of Jesus' harsh words towards even uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of his day was, hey, look at all the good things we're doing. Look at all the external things we're doing. But he says, but your heart is far from me. That you worship me, but you don't worship me because of me. You worship to be seen. You you worship to to look good to to other other people. There's a different motivation going on in your heart. And so good deeds in the scriptures always have a form and a motive behind them. They they rise from a a heart of gratitude in Christ for his glory, not for selfish motives and self-glory. Biblical good deeds are always done for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whatever you do. In word or deed, do it for the glory of God. So it's not that good isn't happening in the world. It's the motivation behind the good. Because again, if we're, the passport says we're under grace or we're in Christ or we're under sin, the reality is if you're not in Jesus and you're not in Christ, your motivation for doing good is always motivated by yourself, for yourself, always because there's not a bigger external motivator, the glory of God. So so we do these things because we've already been redeemed. We've already been rescued. We don't need to to balance the scales. And I think woven, and I think this is God's kindness and God's patience and God's goodness, is that even maybe you might even be in this room, that if you're not a believer in Christ, the reason why we feel like we need to do good is, one, you're made in the image of God. So justice is already built into your DNA, and, and, and eternity is already on your hearts, And the law of God is already written on your heart. So you know there's, there's this kind of thing. I know I should probably do some good things. I don't, I'm not sure why. But the reality is there's also this kind of guilty conscience. There's, there's something like I feel like I need to kind of balance the scales of my life somehow. That's why when I've, I've walked with people on addiction, alcohol and drugs, it's interesting how when you get off alcohol and drugs, often you kind of replace it with this, I need to kind of make the scales right. I, I got to do good. I got I got to make this relationship right. I got it right. It just kind of turns into this other thing where you want to just say, "Hey, you can rest in the gospel of grace. There's no earning here. That doesn't mean we don't make our relationship right. Doesn't mean we don't say we're sorry. Doesn't mean we we don't we don't try to reconcile broken things, of course not." But if our hearts aren't bent towards the glory of God, whatever we're doing, it's really just bent towards ourselves. I love what uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says in Lord's Day 32. It's a beautiful catechism. It says, uh, the question is, we have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ, and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? Isn't that a great question? for forgiven. We're, we're in God's grace. Why, why do we do good? Like, what's the point? Answer, to be sure, Christ has redeemed us by His blood, but we do good because Christ, by His Spirit, is also renewing us to be like Himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all that He has done for us, and so that we may, He may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living our neighbors may be one over Christ. We have a whole different motivation as believers in Christ. It's out of gratitude. Thank you, God. You don't need my good works, but my neighbor does. That's what Luther said. This isn't about earning anything, we have it all. Everything that is in Christ is already ours. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is already ours. Good works isn't going to change that. But out of a response of gratitude, out of the fruit that is born out of our soul, a new soul, a renewed soul, and living and imitating who our God is because our God is a compassionate God. He is a loving God. He is a forgiving God. He's the one who continues to serve and lay his life down for for others and, and take care of the brokenhearted. We respond in that way because of what God has already done in us. It's always motivated by the glory of God. Always. So there is a goodness in the world and it ultimately begins with, with God, motivated by God. It's for his glory. It's not for ours. It's not for our selfish satisfaction, but it's, it's because of him and what he's done. And then, and then last, there's just this fear of the Lord that, that, that I think is so important to kind of put a bow on all of this. is that the entire list of sins and the effects of sin all come back to one big idea, and that is, do we fear God or do we not? That we find ourselves loving, gravitating towards, inclined towards sin, and away from loving God and loving our neighbor. Why? Because the fear of God is not before our eyes. It's why the Ten Commandments are laid out the way they are. You ever read the Ten Commandments? I know you do every day, right? Just remind yourself. Um, Where does it begin, You dirty sinner. Do these things? Is that where it begins? Exodus 20, anybody know? Where does it begin? Yeah? Even before that. I rescued you, I saved you. Starts with grace. Always. Right? That the reason we sin is because we don't have this, the goodness, the grace, the love that's, that roots everything so that if He's not our greatest joy, He's not our greatest love, if we're not loving Him with everything that we are, something else is going to try to take God's place. And so everything's going to get fractured, right? My my relationships are going to get fractured, my my, my my mind, my heart, everything's going to get fractured because God is not ultimately the greatest good. There's no fear of God before my eyes says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In, in Psalm 130, I love what, what Psalm 130 says, um, if I can find it. Psalm 130, uh, verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That when you and I pause just for a moment, And we sit with that list in Romans 3. Here's a little list. And I look at this and I go, yep, 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 that's me. When I read a verse like that, I go, but only you, God, could forgive. Because that's who you are. Only you would sought a sinner like me. As Josh prayed earlier, yet while we are still enemies of God, Christ laid his life down, knowing every inclination of your heart and soul, what you did do, what you will do, what you will do in the future, all of that was covered on the cross. He was willing, and for his glory, and our good, and our salvation, said, I'm laying my life down for you. Taking your place. My righteousness becomes your I'm taking your unrighteousness, your sin on myself and giving it back to you. And when you and I begin to understand this, when we understand that this is the antidote to our sin, is that, it, it, is that sin just constantly makes us forget about God. It makes God unreal to us. But when we have a fear of God, a healthy fear of God before our eyes, and, and again, a fear is not, this isn't a, it can include trembling, but it's not really trembling. It's an honor. It's a respect. It's an awe. It's a wonder. It's making God the, the primary, the ultimate thing in our life. It's a healthy fear. It's a humble fear that He is God and I am not. I am weak and need His grace. Because all humility is, I know we're so weird about humility, like we can't talk about being humble. All humility is just saying, like I'm weak and unable to do things and there's someone greater than me. That's all humility is, right? Are we scared of that? We shouldn't be. People are just people going like, I don't have it all together, and I need God's grace, and I'm, I need his, his mercy, right? I'm not awesome, <laughs> right? It's good to say I'm not awesome daily, but He is. So a healthy fear of God is, is how we can, can continually not fall into those effects and those things that, that Paul lists in, 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 in uh, 11 to, to 18. It's the fear of God that we need, a humble, joyful fear of God, a daily putting God before our hearts and our minds, gathering with the, with our, the church on Sundays to remember that He is good and that He is gracious and doesn't treat us as we deserve. Gathering in, in city groups, opening the scriptures together, being with Christian friends, serving together, all these different ways, it's constantly reminding us that God is good and that sin is a waste of time. That sin will never give us what it promises. Amen. Never. right? For a time, yeah, it's great. It's good, awesome. But it's like that hook in the fish, right? It's just there, It just keeps luring us in, luring us in, and it never delivers on its promise. Now, as we, we land the plane of the sermon, Paul says something really interesting here about the silence that comes when we understand who we really are before God. We understand our lostness, our sin, but God's grace. He says, now we know that, in verse 19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The silence that comes when we see ourselves as we truly are is a gift from God. When we stop saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, You don't understand. I'm a good person. I'm not that bad. I'm not like him or her. There's a beautiful gift that God gives us, and it's called the gift of silence, that we can stand before God and go, I deserve anything that's coming, but I'm banking my hope on the righteousness of Christ, the one who took my judgment." I'm not looking to my good words. I'm not works. I'm not looking to my morality. I'm not looking to how well I recycled or if I did keto or if I got on the treadmill enough or 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 if I said enough words or I go the right way or whatever it is. I'm not banking my life on that. But the whole world will be be silenced. And will either receive on the passport in Christ under grace or under sin. I wanna close with this quote. Oh, wrong quote. A guy named John Gerstner says this: The way to God is wide open. There's nothing standing between the sinner and his God. He has immediate and unimpeding access to the Savior. There's nothing to hinder. No sin can hold you back because God offers justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands before the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. But alas, sinners cannot part with their virtues. They have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to the illusionary virtues of their own. Their eyes fixed on a mirage. They will not drink real water. They die of thirst with water all about them. All you need is need. The gospel is all you need is need. All you need to see is, I have need. That I don't line up. That I do fall short. You don't have to bring anything to the table this morning. I say it every, every week. That we don't come fixing ourselves up. There's no um, amount of works or good things that we need to do before we come to the table. It doesn't mean we, it wouldn't behoove us to confess our sins, uh, maybe quietly, or if there's someone you need to reconcile with, of course we want to do that. But that doesn't keep us from the table. God's grace is wide open. He invites us to the table to come and eat of something that can satisfy the deepest parts of who we are. I, I love um, w- what Peter said in, in 1 Peter uh, 2, is that when, when Jesus was being reviled, when he was being cursed, when he was being pushed aside, that he didn't even open his mouth. But instead, he entrusted himself to the Father. And he gives us an example of that's how we do this. We don't look at our good deeds, we don't look at our good works, we don't look at how good our, our scales were this this week, but we entrust ourselves to the Father who is good and gracious and kind. So if you're a believer in Christ, please come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. The way we do it is we have two uh, lines up in the front. Uh, we break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. Uh, we have some gluten-free, nut-free bread there in the middle you can take as well if you need that. Um, and if you're not a believer in Christ, we just ask you to stay uh, seated for, for now. We'd love to chat with you uh, if you have questions about what it means to follow Christ and what it means to be a Christian. would love to chat with you. There's some prayers in the city life you can kind of look over, mull over. Uh, hopefully it'll encourage you in some, some way. Um, And so with that, come and uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Let us pray. Father, this is a a heavy sermon, (laughs) a heavy teaching from Paul that shows us our true lack, shows us what we're truly capable of, but simultaneously it shows us how good you are. That despite our unfaithfulness, you are faithful. Despite our sin, you are gracious to come and find us, to forgive us, to redeem us, to rescue us from the pit. And then that doesn't change tomorrow or the next day or the next week. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I pray, even as we look at the realities of who we are and the ways in which we often fall short, and, and as we look at our world and say... God, where are you? As we look at those things, may simultaneously our hearts be filled with grace and gratitude and worship and obedience and service because of the God who came and sought us right in the mess. Give us eyes to see, Lord. We love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and up with the Lord, sub with us.